Go ahead, grab a seat, and grab your Bible, and open up to John 13. Once again, open up to John 1.13, where today we're going to look at a passage that really brings one character into focus, a very infamous character, a uh, very notorious character, uh, probably the most tragic figure we see in the Bible, and we're talking about Judas. Nobody wants to be a Judas. And in some ways, I mean that very literally. Have you ever met a Judas before? Uh, you've probably met a Peter, James, John, Matthew, right? All the other disciples. You, you've met people with those names. You probably even maybe have known a Thaddeus or two in your life. Or a Nathaniel, right? The, these are names that have been passed down now for millennia. I, I don't know any Judases. And even you look at baby names, right? My wife and I, she's, she's pregnant, so we're, we've kind of been in that world lately. And you look at these websites that have, you know, the meanings of names and how popular, popular the names are. Well, apparently the name Benjamin is making a comeback, right? The 19th most popular name in uh, 2020. Uh, so good, strong name. We've chosen some less common names for some of our sons. Our youngest son right now is named Jones, and when we named him that, it was about the 1,000th most popular name. So way down the list. It's actually up to like 750. I'd like to think of myself as a trendsetter, but <laughs> whether I started the right wave or I'm riding the wave, that you can decide that. And my wife's due with another son in, uh, in May, and his name is going to be Watson. So that's even less popular. That's all the way down at the 3,000th 3, most popular name. You know how many spaces, I mean, do you know anybody named Watson? Not a very common name. You know how many more, more levels down the list you have to go to get to Judas? It's like, it was 11, it was in the 11,000s was how far down. I'm like, what other names are down there in that range? If it's 8,000 places below Watson, I mean, what, what other names are down there? And really not, not much. One of those baby websites said this, when you typed in that name, it said, although there were two apostles named Judas, Everyone remembers the one who betrayed Jesus. Just pause there. Put yourself in the other Judas's shoes for, for a minute. Imagine having to walk around like that for the rest of your life. It says, everyone remembers the one who betrayed Jesus, and the name has been permanently shunned, right? No one wants to be a Judas, and pretty much nobody is a Judas with that name much anymore. And if your name just so happens to be Judas, I'm sorry if I have offended you. Um, but the reality is we're all tempted to be a Judas. We'll face some of the same temptations that Judas faced, but also many of us, probably most of us, if not all of us, will experience a Judas. We will experience betrayal. Uh, and what, how do we respond to these things? So as we look at the character of Judas, I think it's going to be very relevant, and I want us to learn three critical lessons really from this tragic scene in, in John 13 and this tragic figure in Judas. So let's look now at our passage, John 13, and we're going to look at verses 18 through 30 today. Why don't you follow along as I read our passage for us. Again, Jesus, he's washed the disciples' feet the night before he's crucified, and he says to his disciples, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, went, he immediately went out, and it was night. I think that statement, as we'll come back to it, is more than just a statement of the time of day. Uh, really a statement, really, of what was going on inside of Judas. But I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from this passage. Look at those first three verses to start, where Jesus makes it clear he knows what is about to happen to him. And in fact, I think he's saying more than just he knew it was going to happen, but that it was prophesied to happen. In other words, it was planned to happen. It was planned that Judas was going to betray him. He quotes Psalm 41 verse 9 here, saying this is what the scripture was talking about. But he tells us why uh, he, he does this. And in verse 18, when he says, I'm speaking of all of you, I know whom I have chosen. Let's, I don't think at that time he's really trying to get too deep into, uh, you know, hey, God's res- sovereignty and human responsibility. I think he's just simply talking about those 12 that he had chosen, saying, I know you guys, and I know that one of you is going to betray me. And he quotes Psalm 41, but then he says why he's saying this in verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. He's trying to help his disciples see, hey guys, when this incredibly bad, wicked thing happens, I want to make sure you know I knew it was going to happen. Moreover, it was planned that this was going to happen. And I'm telling you this now so that when it does happen, you're not like, how did this happen? So that you know I told you this was going to happen. And he's trying to encourage them, and I think it should encourage you too. Point number one, our first lesson from this this morning, trust God's control over evil people. Trust God's control over evil people. And this is where I think trusting God gets harder. When there's an evil person that is involved, right? It's one thing to trust God when you get in an accident because your tire blew out, you, you know, and you kind of ran off the road and, and got into an accident, right? It's one thing, it's like, why did this happen? You kind of say, well, God's in control. I, I got to trust him. That's like trusting God uh, 101. But then when we get into the advanced, the, uh, the upper division classes, right? It's okay, well, what if you get in the accident because you were hit by a drunk driver, right? That gets a little hard because it's not like, ah, something happened. I guess I got to trust God. It's like, no, there's a a wicked person responsible for this. They did something bad, and this is their fault. Well, still in that situation, guess who's in control? God is. And trusting that 
can be harder. And few things in life are more painful than betrayal. Jesus quotes again from Psalm 49, verse 1. Another psalm that speaks of this is Psalm 55, where David, you can tell he's particularly hurt. And he explains why. He's saying, I'm I'm so hurt over this because it's not an enemy who taunts me. It's my friend. Somebody that I used to take sweet counsel with together in the Lord. Now they've stabbed me in the back. And it is painful. Few things you will experience in life will be more painful than that. And even though, yes, there may be a person that is responsible, it is their fault. We have to learn to see that God is in control even of that. It doesn't take away responsibility from those that do evil. But even over that, God is in control. And Judas was proof. And even what we're about to see in the crucifixion is proof. You see Peter saying, hey, Jesus was delivered over according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew it. God planned it. That doesn't mean that the people who did it, and then he calls out the people who did it, right? They go hand in hand. And we see this from Judas. There's another place in scripture I want us to look where I think it really shines through, and that's the story of Joseph. Turn in your Bibles back to the beginning. Let's go to the first book, Genesis, in chapter 45. Chapter 45. You remember, many of you, the story of Joseph. He was the 11th out of 12 sons. And let's be clear, he was not perfect. He was kind of setting the bar for all of us younger siblings who would come in the future, right? Of being that annoying little sibling, right? He, he was, and many of us younger siblings since that have been working really hard to, uh, you know, keep that stereotype going, right? Um, but none of that was justification for what his brothers did to him, right? They wanted to kill him, but they got talked out of killing him and settled for selling him into slavery. And he gets taken away as a slave to a foreign country, where then, even though he rises within one house as a servant, he is falsely accused of sexual assault and thrown into jail where he is forgotten, literally, by people who said that they wanted to help him. But eventually... Pharaoh has a dream. Joseph is raised up to interpret that dream and ends up becoming second in command in the whole kingdom. And then the brothers show up to their brother who they don't recognize Joseph because now he walks like an Egyptian, right? They don't recognize him. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Well, 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 how the tables have turned, right? That They're looking at him and they don't know who they're looking at, but he recognizes his brothers. And so as he does that, we see here in chapter 45, verse 3, eventually he reveals himself. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. That's a very understandable thing, right? I mean, imagine if you sold one of your siblings off to slavery, and now you're literally begging for food. For them, and and, in trouble with the law before them, right? You would be dismayed too. But look at what Joseph says, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. You see how he says in that moment, hey, I'm trusting that it was God. God was behind all this. God sent me here. Even though the brothers were wrong, terribly wrong, sinfully wrong, Joseph had learned to look past that to see God was in control of all of it. And it said, I think, even better at the end of the book, go to chapter 50, where it's kind of a repeat of the scenario. Now, 
uh, their dad, their father dies. And the brothers are a little worried now. Okay, maybe Joseph was just being nice while our father was alive. And now that he's gone, now he's going to get us back. And so they even kind of concoct this story where they go to Joseph and they say, hey, before he died, daddy said you had to forgive us. And Joseph responds in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. And then I love this. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So there we see, I love that. For am I in the place of God? Joseph has learned to acknowledge God is in control even when it hurts. And he doesn't let his brothers off the hook. He calls them out. You meant it for evil. What you did was wrong. And there's no two ways about that. But God meant it for good. And when we see that in Joseph, when we see that in Judas, it should encourage us. One, we should know, hey, those evil people that do evil things, they're not going to get away with it. I mean, have you read Revelation? They're not going to get away with it. Judas doesn't get away with it. And even, I think, we should put yourself in the shoes of those brothers. They probably suffered a lot, even with the guilt and all that came along with what they did to their little brother. They didn't get away with it. But at the same time, we should all acknowledge that no one can do anything to us that is not a part of God's plan for our lives. Do you believe that? Some people are going to do some things to you that they mean for evil. It's wrong. It's wicked. But God is going to use it for good in your life if you are one of his people. That should be an encouraging thought for us as we deal with Judas's in our own day. And we deal with a wicked world all around us. And then back in John 13, verse 20 is kind of interesting. How does that fit? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. How's that connected to all this stuff about Judas betraying him? Well, the other time we see Jesus basically use those exact same words to talk to his disciples is in Matthew 10, when he is training them up to go out and do ministry. And I think it has a similar effect here that he's trying to use this one specific time with Judas to help train them up to go serve and to go take the gospel to all the world, which is then what goes on and happens. These guys go on. Do you think they experienced betrayal as they went then and tried to bring the gospel all over the world? I bet they did. And he's trying to encourage them. Hey, the one who receives you though, they're receiving me. And the one who receives me will receive you. He's encouraging them for ministry. And I think this should encourage you for ministry. The mission of this church is to make disciples. And that's not my job. That's our job. Everyone should be involved in making disciples. Do you know that can be a hard thing? And to really seek to invest in other people, you're going to have to open up your heart and make sacrifices. And sometimes the response that you're going to get for that is getting stabbed in the back. That's going to happen. And what the devil wants to happen is when you do that, when you get burned for you to say, that's it. I'm keeping my faith between me and Jesus from now on. And I'm not worrying about anybody else. I'm not opening up my heart to anyone else. I think Jesus is trying to encourage us. No, keep doing the right thing. Keep following the pattern of Jesus and trust that, hey, when you experience betrayal, when you experience evil, God's in control. And I know that that never makes it easy. I think someday when we get to talk about to Joseph about what that was like, we're going to see it was probably really, really hard. But what got him through was that faith that God 
was in control. May we have that same faith. Well, back in John 13, Jesus gets clearer. He's talking about one of them that is going to lift his heel against them. Well, now he just gets really straightforward with it in verse 20. After these things, Jesus was troubled. So that's interesting, right? Jesus being troubled, even though he is God in the flesh, he experiences this anguish, suffering in his spirit. And he testifies, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then verse 22 is really, I think, one of the most incredible statements in the Bible. It says, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. He says very clear, one of you is going to betray me. They have no idea who he's talking about. Let's just say that I choose 12 of you and we go on a three-year mission trip together. And I know the whole time that one of you at the end is going to betray me. And the, the last night before the trip's over, before I'm about to be betrayed, I say, hey guys, one of you is going to betray me. I'm guessing the other 11 of you would all be like, that's what's been going on the whole time, right? You probably would be able to pick up that I'm probably treating that person a little differently than the rest of you because I know what's going to happen. And I'm going to say, if you were in that position, you probably would too. Jesus apparently has been treating Judas exactly like the rest of them for three years, even though he knows the whole time what Judas is going to do to him. John 6, 64 says that Jesus knew from the beginning who was going to betray him. He knows, but he has acted in such a way that the disciples are clueless. And so then we get this situation, right? They're clueless. And as usual, who breaks the silence? Peter does. He's matured a little bit since verse 6. He gets a little more discreet in how he does it. And so he motions to this disciple whom Jesus loved, which I think is a reference to John, the one who's writing this gospel. And again, remember, get Leonardo da Vinci out of your head, right? The Last Supper where they're all sitting at these chairs at this one straight table, probably not how it was. They were reclining, like I demonstrated a few weeks ago, lying kind of on their left side, resting on their left elbow at a very small or short table, you know, literally kind of laying on the ground or reclining, as it says here in the text. And the table probably wasn't one long table. It was probably a U-shaped table. So Peter probably isn't very close to Jesus, but he tries to get John's attention, right? And you can probably imagine that. Peter kind of trying to make eye contact, like, you know, pointing to Jesus, pointing to John, pointing to Jesus, being like, you know, he's, he's motioning at him, trying to say, what's, what's going on? What's he talking about? And so, John, it says, he leans back against Jesus. He's probably on Jesus's right then, if he's leaning back to talk to Jesus. And he says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, most of the commentaries I have looked at understand this act, even of handing this morsel to Judas as an act of honor, right? That this was something you would not just do to anyone, but do to an honored guest. And then even because Jesus hands it to Judas so simply, it seems that Judas must be near Jesus. And the way they're arranged, we know who's on his right. Uh, That's John. It seems like Judas probably is then right there next to him on his left. What was that? The place of honor. So even after three years of treating Judas the same way as he was treating everyone else, in these final moments, he gives a gesture of favor to Judas who is seated in the position of honor. So let's 
put this all together and draw a lesson for ourselves. Point number two, show kindness even when it's not deserved. Show kindness even when it's not deserved. And one thing we're going to see in a dark story about Judas is the brightness of the love of Jesus Christ. And we've called this series in John 13, Learning to Love. And I think this is probably one of the hardest lessons that we're going to learn in this series. But what we see here, I believe, is Jesus practicing what he preached. He is showing us in John 13 what he has been telling us all along. And let's look at what he's telling us. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 now. Matthew chapter 5. And let's look at verse 43 through the end of the chapter. This is part of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus here says something that should get our attention. Matthew 5, verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a radical statement. In a world where the expectation is, yeah, I'll love my neighbor, I'll love my friends, I'll love my family, and I will hate my enemies. Jesus says, no, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is in line with other radical commands we see in the New Testament. Like, hey, you need to forgive others just like Christ forgave you. And commands to be patient with one another, bearing with one another. Those are radical things, and Christians should look differently than the world. But what does this mean? What does it look like to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you? And let me try to bring some clarity by listing some things that I think this doesn't mean and some things that it does. Now, this is not exhaustive, but I hope it's helpful. Loving your enemies, showing kindness when it's not deserved. What does that not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that you stop speaking truth. It doesn't mean that you stop speaking truth. And even Jesus, I think, says some things to Judas. Look at Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And Jesus says things throughout, you know, at points, hey, it would be better if he wasn't even born. Jesus says some strong things about Judas. And Jesus says a lot of things that offended a lot of people. And he's saying, hey, love your enemies. That clearly does not mean, well, hey, you're never going to say anything that's true that might offend somebody. Now, he was speaking the truth. So that's not what loving your enemies means. It doesn't just say, oh, I'm going to say what they want to hear. No, I'm going to speak the truth. It also does not mean that every relationship will work out. Loving your enemies does not mean that every relationship will work out. Does Jesus' relationship with Judas work out? Not so much. And not because of Jesus. That's why I love how it's put in Romans 12, 18, which I think you can look out there. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It doesn't just say, hey, live peaceably with all. It says, hey, 
As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So another maybe helpful, clarifying thing, God's calling us to do our part. It also doesn't mean that you don't seek protection, right? It doesn't mean that you don't seek protection. We've even seen that with the Apostle Paul. Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Well, sometimes we've seen Paul fleeing from the people persecuting him in a basket over the wall, right? Uh, Sometimes that's the right thing to do in that situation. Also, I mean, if someone is committing a crime against you, this does not mean, well, I'm not going to take action to protect myself or to seek justice through the law. So it doesn't mean that we stop speaking truth or that every relationship will work out or that we don't seek protection. But let's think through some things that it does mean. And and this is not going to be an easy list. It does mean we genuinely seek the good of our enemies. Genuinely seeking the good of our enemies. And what does that look like? Well, Jesus helps us. One way we can do that is by praying for them. Praying for those who have betrayed you. Praying for those who have wronged you. And I don't think these are passive-aggressive prayers. I think these are genuine prayers. I know even the ladies here, you spent a lot of time over the last couple of months talking about the Lord's Prayer. There's six requests in the Lord's Prayer, all of which would be valid to pray for a person like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, I want to pray for this person that they would have their eyes able to see how great you are and that you would help them have a right relationship with you. Let your kingdom come, let your will be done. God, ultimately, I hope this person is saved and and seeking you and know what what it means to be forgiven of their sins and part of the kingdom of God. I hope they're growing in sanctification. Give us this day our daily bread. God, I want to pray for this person that you would meet their needs, that you would be, be generous to provide for them. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Pray, God, would you forgive this person for the wrong that they've done for me? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, I want to pray for this person that you would lead them out of temptation, that evil things wouldn't happen to them. These are the kind of things that we should be praying for our enemies. That doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel natural. But that's what Jesus is calling us to. Another thing that I think this means is never hold a grudge. Never hold a grudge. We have to be willing to forgive. And we can't force reconciliation. We can't force repentance from the other person. But there should always be, on our end, a readiness to forgive that person. Right? If you go out to lunch today and you pull out your debit card or a credit card and you swipe that for lunch, right? And then an hour later you go to your app or whatever and you check your account That amount might show up there, but it hasn't gone through yet, right? I think that's what forgiveness on our end can look like, right? To really see the relationship restored, the other person has to repent and receive that forgiveness. They don't always do that. But we need to swipe the card. We need to write the check. We need to plan, hey, those funds are gone, right? I'm, I'm ready to give this to this person as soon as they're willing to receive it. That's where God has called us to be. So that means we're never holding a grudge. We're never holding on to bitterness in our hearts. As Christians, we don't look at somebody else and say, well, they're dead to me. It's over, right? That's not the way God has thought of us. And another thing it means is that we never seek vengeance. We never seek vengeance. Scripture from beginning to end is pretty clear. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. 
And if you want to know what that vengeance is going to look like, go ahead and read the book of Revelation. I'm pretty sure he's going to take care of it, right? That's not our job to seek that. And again, there's a difference between pursuing justice and pursuing vengeance. Pursuing justice, I think, is the Absolutely okay thing for Christians to do because that's pursuing what is right and what is good. Pursuing vengeance is I want to get them. That's not what we're supposed to do, right? Even if it comes to, hey, I have to press charges against somebody who is committing a crime against me. Our motive is we're seeking what is right and what is good and fair, not I want to get back at them. That should be foreign to the mindset and the heart of a believer. And another thing it does mean is always treat them with the fruit of the Spirit. Always treat them with the fruit of the Spirit. What, what is that? Galatians 5, and 23 tells us, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is how we should seek to treat other people, even when there are enemies, even when they've done wrong to us. And that's really what we see here in Matthew 5 again, where it reminds us, Hey, do this, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What does that mean? By loving my enemies, I earn being God's son. No, that's not the gospel. That's works righteousness. Wrong answer. What does that mean? It means basically to show that you are sons of the father so that people will look at you and say, hey, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Just like God loves his enemies, so do his kids. And how does God do it? He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. Isn't this a beautiful kind of taste of spring day here that we're having in the Treasure Valley today? Well, guess what? The worst sinner in the valley gets to enjoy it just as much as you do. Do they deserve it? No, they don't. But God's given it to them anyways. God is being kind to them. And that's the attitude that we should reflect towards others. Love, joy, peace, patience. Because you might think, well, they don't deserve it. And you might not be wrong. But God calls us to treat them that way anyways. And even as we think through those things, what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, I think we'll see it's applicable to our lives all over the place. Last week, as we talked about being servants, we talked about different, very common areas in our life. Work, home, church, neighborhood. You probably have situations in all of those places. Think of work. You probably have some coworker or maybe your boss that treats you poorly, treats you in a way that's not right. How are you going to respond to that? Not holding a grudge, seeking their good, not seeking vengeance, treating them with the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, let's be real. Those of you that are married, there's always some days where your spouse or moments where they might feel like your enemy. And in that moment, what are you going to treat them like? And how do we do this? Whether it's at church in our our small group with the person that, man, they always seem to ignore me or however that may be. Well, we do it with all the things we've seen in John 13. Trusting that our Father is caring for us. Just like Jesus, the reason he got up to wash the feet was he knew that he had come from the Father. He knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. And he knew he was going back to the Father. He was trusting in the Father. He was focused on the future. Knowing that it wasn't about this life. This wasn't where the glory was going to come. And even in addition to what Jesus knew, we should have an extra motive that we should remember how God has treated us. And that should motivate us to do these things. But some of you, it's not the everyday. It's not, you know, my, my kids or my siblings or my coworkers or my neighbor, right? There's some very serious situations in your life 
more up the alley of Joseph, where people in your life have done real wrong that has brought real hurt and real pain to your life. What does this look like then? Well, as you think through the specifics, I'd encourage you to do some things. I'd encourage you to think through that specific situation or that relationship and to really look at Matthew 5. Look at John 13. Look at a passage like Colossians 3 where it calls us to forgive others as Christ has forgiven us. Pray through those passages and then come up with your own list. Okay, in this specific situation, as I seek to apply these, what does it not mean and what does it mean? And if that what does it mean list isn't challenging, isn't, doesn't feel like it's going against our natural desires, then we're not doing it right. We need to really think through what Jesus is saying. And if you're in one of those situations, another thing that I would strongly encourage you to do is don't go through that situation alone. Find a brother or sister in Christ that you can trust and share with them. Say, hey, this is what I'm thinking. I think if I think through loving my neighbors, I think this is what it means in this situation. And invite their feedback for to say, yes, I, I think you're right. And I'm praying for you. Or maybe for them to say, you know, I think God's actually calling you to forgive this person. And this is maybe what that should look like. And if you're a part of this church, I hope you don't feel like you would ever have to go through a situation like this alone. But whatever the end result is, it should look radically different from the world. Came across a story this week from World War II of some English or British prisoners of war in Thailand. So they were prisoners of war under the, the Japanese, and they were forced to work on the famous railroad of death. So it was a pretty horrible existence of tons of mistreatment. Many of them died because of the mistreatment and the, how brutally they were being forced to work on this project. I mean, a, not how any of us would want to be living life. And one day, as they were being marched to work, they came across a stopped train car full of wounded Japanese soldiers. And as they looked at them, it was a pretty pathetic sight. These wounded Japanese soldiers, their, their uniforms were covered with blood and with dirt and with excrement, right? And their wounds, well, it's almost lunchtime, so I won't describe their wounds to you, but it was bad. It was ugly. And, and as the, the prisoners of war were seeing all this, it kind of dawned on them, wow, no wonder they treat us so bad. Look how they treat their own people. And in that situation, I think what would be natural, every one of us would think we would walk right on by, look at those suffering soldiers and say, that's what you get, right? Well, that's not what these men did. These men stopped. They took off their own backpacks, took their own bandages, took their own canteens, and washed and dressed the wounds of these Japanese soldiers. They showed them the love of Christ. They loved their enemies. They returned good for evil. It was a radically different thing. And whatever this ends up looking like in your life, it shouldn't just feel like that's how the culture works. It should be there's something different about that, and it's because of Jesus. And because we trust he is in control, and we want to follow his example of loving our enemies. Well, let's look again at John 13 at the end of the story, and really get into more how Judas responds to all of this. Starting in verse 27, after Jesus has given him this favorable gesture, giving him the morsel, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. We see in the Gospels people being demon-possessed. It seems at this point Satan takes possession of Judas. And Jesus says to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. I think Jesus 
again, kind of releases Judas at this point to his fate, even though I think rightly up until that last moment, Jesus is making a final appeal to Judas. At this point, it's, it's over. And again, we have to remember Jesus, John, they have no problem putting God's sovereignty and human responsibility right next to each other. Look again at Luke twenty two twenty two. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. That sounds like God's sovereignty. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That sounds like, whoa, Judas is responsible. He should not have done this. But up until the end, Jesus is showing him kindness. But in this moment, I think he is turned over to his desires. And then that last statement in verse 30, and it was night. In a book so full of references to light and darkness and the truth of that, I don't think this is just a simple statement telling us what time of day it was. I think it really is showing us that in that struggle between light and darkness, the darkness had completely taken control of Judas. I think obviously there's some unique things going on here with Satan entering into him and the prophecy that was being fulfilled. But I don't think it's totally unlike what some people experience. Romans chapter 1 verse 24 mentions a way that God judges people and he judges them by giving them over to their sinful desires. He, he, he gives them up to go do what they want to do. And I think that's what we see here with Judas because he had been there the whole time. I think Jesus even is... The pivot point to this discussion of Judas is verse 17 in John 13, where he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Judas knew everything the rest of the disciples knew. He had seen Jesus for three years, but he was not following Christ. And even there at the end of the chapter, it talks about Judas having the money bag. What was he, we know, what was he doing with that money bag? Stealing from it. He had patterns of of secret sin this, this whole time. That even up until the end, even though he looked like the other disciples, he was playing the game. And I wish the Bible gave us more into what his thoughts were like. But I think at the end of the day, whatever it was, for Judas, Jesus was a means to an end. And when he realized he wasn't going to get that end, he was done with Jesus. What's Jesus to you? Is Jesus a means to an end or is he the end? Because if he's a means to the end, someday when you realize uh, he's not going to give me just, oh, I'm following Jesus so I can be successful or so I can have that picture-perfect family or so that I can conquer my own Goliaths or whatever it may be, right? It's not just, no, I want to know Jesus. That's what it should be about. If that's not your heart, someday you're going to be done with Jesus too. But here, Jesus is making this appeal up to the last moment. And then we see the darkness take over. Point number three today, respond to Jesus' kindness before it's too late. Respond to Jesus' kindness before it's too late. The disciples had no clue that someone among them was there going through the motions, but was just playing the game. We might not know who you are this morning, but there are undoubtedly people among us this morning that you're here, you're going through the motions, and you're playing the game. And one of the reasons you know that you're playing the game is because like Judas, there's still that sin that you're holding on to. Maybe nobody else even knows about it. Maybe it's like Judas, right? This private sin that he is indulging in that no one else has ever picked up on. But you're holding on to it and you're not truly following Christ. You think of Jesus' kindness. The Bible makes it very clear. What's the purpose of his kindness? Why is he kind? Why is he patient? Romans 2 uh, verses 4 and 5 
tell us. Listen to these verses. It says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why is it such a beautiful day that even the worst sinner gets to enjoy today? Because God is patient and hoping that some of them will come to repentance. But those that aren't, those that are holding on to that sin, but because, verse 5, of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That's what some of you here today are doing. As you hold on to sin, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Even as God is being kind and patient to you in order to lead you to repentance. And I do believe, partly from what we see from Judas, but also back in Romans 1 verse 24, we see God giving people up to the lusts of their hearts. I do think there comes a point where it's too late, where you're going to go out and it will be night and the darkness will be complete. I think what's dangerous for us is to try to take that next step and try to figure out when is it too late and to look around at others and say, is it too late for them? Or even to ask, is it too late for me? I think that information is above our pay grade. I think it happens. I think it's there, but it's not our place to know that. That's God's prerogative. We should be responding to what God has told us, and that is he has called us to repentance. Jesus has said from day one, repent and believe the good news. He's told us all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he has said things like this in Hebrews chapter 3, where it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is lying to every single one of us every day, and it wants to harden our hearts. And we need to beware. And we need to respond to his kindness. Really, in a story that, as I said, emphasizes the badness of Judas, really we see a lot about the kindness of Jesus and the patience of Jesus. And that's why we want to end today by uh, taking communion together. Also, it's our tradition on the first Sunday of every month, we want to start the month by remembering what Christ has done I think this message really fits well for that. As all of us, remember, we don't deserve his kindness. And it's because of his grace that even as we think about loving our enemies, we're reminded that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. What an amazing truth that is. And so hopefully you got... Uh, the elements as you came in this morning. If you did not, we've got some of our ushers coming up the aisles. Just go ahead, put your hand in the air. Just leave it up. Okay, we've got several. Just go ahead, keep it in the air, and then one of them will, will find you, and we'll give you time to make sure that they get to you. But we want to remember how Jesus loved us when we were his enemies. We want to remember his sovereignty over the worst thing that ever happened. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ should encourage us as we consider his sovereignty over the bad things that happen to us. We want to remember. And the Bible makes clear this is an act that should be done by believers. And if there is sin in your heart, uh, go ahead and let these elements pass. But actually what I would call you to do is repent. View this as Jesus holding out the morsel to you 
calling you to repentance. And let today be the day. Let right now be the moment where you turn from sin and embrace Jesus as Savior and Lord. And you can join in this feast of what he has done. But let's take this moment. Let's examine ourselves. Let's consider this truth in light of the resurrection and how that should apply to us. John is going to play and then we will take this together in just a few moments. about coming to this table today, if we're honest, all of us have a lot more in common with Judas than we do with Jesus. And it was because Jesus loved his enemies, enemies like you and me, that we can even approach this table. So may we come humbly and gratefully to the Lord's table, and let's do this in remembrance of him. Please pray with me. Father, we come to you, Lord, and take these elements, Lord, and remember what Jesus did for us. God, let there not be an ounce of pride, even as we look at Judas, God, if there's any, if there's anyone that we could look at and say, well, at least I'm better than they are. God, maybe it's Judas, but help us to actually see, Lord, the ways that we have failed, Lord, to see our own sin as betrayal and to see the incredible love and kindness that you have shown to us, God. Lord, as we go into this week, may this act even of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus, may it strengthen us to love our own enemies, to trust you, even when evil people are doing evil things, and even when they're doing evil things against us, God. And Lord, I pray for those here today that are playing the game, going through the motions, God. Would today be the day that you soften their hearts, God? And I pray that even now they would respond to your call to repent and put their faith in Christ. Lord, that even as we read in Psalm 32 this week, God, that they would seek the Lord in a time when he may be found and know the blessings and the joy that come from forgiveness. Blessings and joy that can only come because of what Jesus has done for us. And so we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,